Hi, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Mike Gould Talks for June the 22nd, 2020. This is episode five of the show, and I'm pleased to announce that I have a really good guest coming on today's edition of the show in about half an hour. Um, you've seen his work all over the place. Uh, I can list off about 10 places he's written, uh, Sportsnet, Vice, uh, ESPN, Grantland, uh, The Globe and Mail. There, there's a few more. Um, I first started reading this guy's work back in 2011. And I would say that it's probably likely that he is the world's foremost authority on hockey humor. Joining me today is uh, hockey columnist Sean McIndoo, who is also known as Down Goes Brown. Um, and Down Goes Brown has a massive following on Twitter. He has hundreds of thousands of followers, and he was kind enough to join me on today's edition of the show for about half an hour of his time. Uh, and we talk about all sorts of stuff, and I'm really looking forward to sharing that with you. Now, before we get to that part of the show, I have a few announcements to make. The first of which is um, in relation to an earlier edition of the show. Um, you might remember me in, I think, episode one or maybe episode two of the show talking about the store Dollarama. Um which was a formative part of my youth, Dollarama being a store where you can basically get anything. But, you know, it's not too cheap. The maximum price for stuff at Dollarama these days is $4 per item, which allows some flexibility in terms of getting things that actually have some use. You know, you go to some dollar stores and the maximum price is $1.25 for their items. So, you know, there's sort of a limited cap in terms of the product quality, but... Anyway, so I talked a bit on the show earlier, maybe a, couple, a month ago, about Dollarama and how there is a Dollarama location opening up near my house. Now, I believe on that edition of the show, whichever show it might have been, I talked about how I wanted to get a job at this Dollarama. Um, at least I'm pretty sure I talked about this on the show. I sure intended to. Uh, if I didn't, you can sue me. But today I am pleased to announce that I have, in fact, gotten a job at this Dollarama store. Um, well, actually, there was another Dollarama store that opened up, like, maybe 10 minutes away from this Dollarama. Because this Dollarama near my house hasn't opened yet. And so I'm going to be starting at the other Dollarama that is sort of on the east side of Calgary's downtown. Um, but in a couple of weeks or whenever the new store opens by my house, they might have me work in there. Um, so anyway, I encourage you all to come down to Dollarama, uh, where, wherever the location may be. It's a really great store. Uh, we got lots of items in terms of basically everything you can get. I'm, I was, I was there the other day and I saw they had some really cool grilling accessories and, uh, I'm starting to get into some grilling, just picked up a new barbecue and, uh, you know, they had baskets for grilling, you know, and that's not, that's the sort of thing that you might be paying $30 or $40 for in another store, uh, but at Dollarama, they're yours for $4. Um, yeah, it's just a truly fantastic store, especially if you're a chocolate aficionado like me, all about their chocolate. Chocolate at Dollarama is such a good price. You can get a big bag of M&Ms at Shoppers Drug Mart for maybe 4 or $5. At Dollarama, it's 2 You know, you can't beat that. Anyway, come to down to Dollarama, wherever it may be, you will find something you like, I guarantee it. Um, so, also, I've uh, had some technical difficulties um, with the show in recent weeks. Uh, that's why there was no show last week on June the 15th. Uh, I was originally intending to publish an interview that I had done with a couple of guys who run a podcast here in town called The Fireside Chat, um, and those two guys are... Matt Duborg and Dan Stevenson, and we had a really good chat about the NHL's play-in series, um, the eight play-in series that have been announced uh, between teams on the bubble of making the playoffs and the NHL's Western and Eastern conferences. Uh, we ran through all eight of those matchups, and we picked winners in each one, and uh, it, it was really good. It was a great episode, but the funny thing is I forgot to save my side of the audio. For that episode, I on on the 
recording app that I use to record the stuff on the show. Um, there's a button that you have to press, and then there's another button you have to press to save it, and I only pressed the first button. I didn't press the second one for that particular interview. And so uh, Matt and Dan both recorded their audio for that show, but I did not get my audio on file. So I am going to be going through the rather arduous task in the coming weeks, of, or in the coming week, of stitching together their individual audio files and then recomposing my own audio file based on the context of the conversation. So there will still be an interview with Matt and Dan from the Fireside Chat. I hope to have it out this coming week on June 29th. Um, it'll be an effort for sure. It will be uh, a fun little project to do, but I think I'll be able to do it just fine. Um, so here's hoping uh, June 29th, Fireside Chat should be on the show. It should be a really fun show. Um, they're great guys. And go check out the Fireside Chat podcast when you have the chance. Uh, they're... They talk about the Calgary Flames and all things about that sport and that team, and uh, it's a really good listen. I've been on a couple of their episodes before, and it's just a lot of fun. Um, some other news: uh, June or sorry, no, July the sixth, I think. Yeah, that, that I think that's the episode of the show after next week's episode. Um, I'm pleased to announce that I will have another really cool guest coming on the show on July sixth. And it's going to be a bit of a departure from previous guests. Uh, so far in the show, I've been talking almost exclusively about hockey, um, which makes sense. Hockey is one of my passions, and it's something that I think I know a bit about. Um, but I also, as evidenced by the first episode of the show, like to talk a lot about movies. Um, I had a great episode, uh, well, I had a great discussion back in episode one with my friend Meredith about the Disney live-action Hercules remake that's coming up soon. Um, and I've wanted to talk some more about movies ever since, but I haven't really found the right context to do so. Um, but that's about to change because on July the 6th, I'm going to be talking to a really cool guest um, who, uh, forgive me, Matt, if I get any of these credentials wrong, but um, Matt zoller Sites, who has worked for... Uh, RogerEbert.com. I'm pretty sure he's like the managing editor at large there or something. Um, he's worked for the New York Press as a film reviewer. Uh, he's been a filmmaker. Uh, he's done a whole bunch of work just writing about films. He is a film scholar, one of the most renowned guys in the whole United States uh, and in the world. And uh, he has a new book coming out called The Press Gang, Writings on Cinema from the New York Press, uh, 1991 to 2011. Um, and it's sort of a compendium of, of some of his great reviews from the New York Press. Um, he That's along with him, Godfrey Cheshire and Armand White, who are two other movie reviewers. Um, and we're going to be talking about his book. I'm going to be reviewing his book. I'm getting a copy of it ahead of time. Uh, the book comes out on July 21st. Um, go check it out. But yeah, Matt zoller Sites is going to be on the show. We're going to talk about his book. We're going to talk about film criticism. I mean... The thing you have to understand about Matt is that he works for RogerEbert.com, and he basically writes all, almost all the reviews over there. And Roger Ebert was a legendary, legendary film critic for the Chicago Sun-Times for decades. Um, he reviewed everything. He, was, he had a TV show with Gene Siskel called Siskel and Ebert at the Movies. Um, it used to be on posters everywhere that, you know, if, if Siskel and Ebert liked the movie, they would give it two thumbs up, and that would be on the poster for the movie. And that was a huge selling point for movies. Um, and then the guy who took over from Roger Ebert when he uh, passed away in 2013 was Matt zoller Sites. I mean, he has the cred to take over from a legend like that. Um, and so he's coming on the show. I couldn't be more excited to talk about movies, to talk about reviews, to talk about uh, the art of film criticism and film academia. Uh, and, you know, it's it's going to be a really fun conversation, and I'm really looking forward to sharing it with you. Um, so that's big news. That's July 6th, um, as of right now. You never know with my show. Things go all over the place. Yeah. 
Um, so I think that does it for the announcements portion of the show. Um, I want to talk about one little topic here before I get on to the uh, Down Goes Brown interview. Um, in recent weeks, I have been on a bit of a kick in terms of Slurpees. Um, and I mean, not like I'm, it's not like I'm from Winnipeg, uh, which, if, in case you didn't know, Winnipeg, I think the numbers were they sell like over 180,000 Slurpees a month compared to the rest of Canada, which sells about the same number of Slurpees every month. The city of Winnipeg alone is accounts for half of Canada's monthly Slurpee output. It is the Slurpee capital of the world. Isn't that crazy? Like, can you have, why, why have, why in Winnipeg of all places, a city that is so terribly cold half of the year, no disrespect to you, Winnipeg, I love your city, you have a great downtown, uh, the forks are beautiful, but, um, I mean, Winnipeg is just such a cold city. I have no, I mean, Calgary's cold too. And we don't drink Slurpees for half the year, but Winnipeg apparently does. I don't, I don't understand it. But anyway, uh, that's off the, that's off the point. Uh, in recent weeks, I have had so many Slurpees, I have lost count. I, I, I mean, they're just such a great drink. Um, and my go-to is just your usual Pepsi Slurpee. I find Coke Slurpees are, uh, are not my thing. I also find Frosters uh, from Circle K or Max or the Couchetard, depending on where you're from. I'm a sucker for the Couchetard. Remember, uh, went to Montreal a couple of times in high school, and we always went to the same train station, and I always went to the Couchetard, and I picked up some uh, some, some snacks. Uh, and that's the French version of Max, for those of you who don't know. But at the Circle K or the Max or the Couchetard, they have Frosters, and at 7-Eleven, they have Slurpees. And I actually prefer Frosters, even though they're sort of like the, to, to, they're, they're what Scotties are to Kleenex. You know, they're the off-brand. But um, I've been having a lot of Frosters, primarily Frosters lately, although I've had the odd Slurpee. And it's, I mean, for me, I have to go with the Pepsi almost every time. But I've had some people telling me that the Coke ones are better. And I've tried the Coke ones a few times, and... I just find they're too heavy. They're not quite as sweet. They sort of get caught in my throat a little bit. I don't know. The taste is just the worst kind of tang. You know what I mean? Like when you drink something that's a little bit too tangy and it sort of makes you gag and you get like acid reflux for 20 minutes or whatever. That's what a Coke Froster is. And a Pepsi Froster is just smooth. It's got like, I don't know what it is. It's, it's, it's like drinking a pillow except not... You know, it's just like it tastes good, but you know, it's like drinking something smooth. It it goes down right, makes you feel refreshed. It's like drinking a Pepsi, but it's always ice cold. And besides, I'm I'm more of a Pepsi guy over Coke anyway. Um, if you disagree with that, we are not friends. I'm just kidding. Uh, Coke fan Coke Coke fans are my friends, but Pepsi f fans are better friends. No disrespect to Coke friends. Um. But I've tried some other flavors lately. I tried, oh God, I went to a 7-Eleven over on McLeod Trail and I had a root beer slush, which you don't see too often. It's sort of an off-the-beaten-path uh, off type slush. It's sort of like, I don't know, it's, it's like a hipster slush. And I tried one and it was god-awful. I don't know what it was. It tasted like, it was this weird light brown color, like almost the color of like poo. I don't know what it was. Um, it tasted almost like weirdly fruity. I had like one sip of it and I dumped it out and I filled it up with Coke instead. It was that bad. Like I, I never dump out a slush, but it tasted almost rancid. And I'm not sure if that's like the norm for root beer slushes. If like whoever runs the mug root beer company is just so vindictive about people who don't drink root beer in its purest tap form that whenever they apply to their formula to slushes, they make it intentionally worse. Um... So if a representative from the Mug Root Beer Company is listening to this uh, podcast, uh, as I'm sure you totally are, you don't have anything better to do, I'm sure, um, please can you confirm or deny that conspiracy theory because I genuinely think it's true. It was that bad. Um, now, I have a weird theory also about cream soda slushes because cream soda slushes sound, in theory, you know, like they'd be the ideal Slurpee. You know, they, they taste like candy. But I, I've had a few cream soda slushes over the past few weeks, and my take on them is that with a cream soda slush, the first sip is the only good sip. Every subsequent sip tastes like nothing. It tastes like nothing. I don't know what it is, 
when you have a cream soda slush, it's just, you know, the first sip, it explodes on your tongue. It makes it dance. It does jumping jacks. I don't know. It, 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 I don't know. But uh, every subsequent sip, it's like your tongue has already gotten sick of it. And it's like not doing anything. It's, it's, it's not, it's just, you know, it's, it's limp. It doesn't. And then you have the opposite side of the spectrum. Uh, I had a crush blue raspberry froster. Um, same, same thing, crush, but it's too much. It, it, it makes your tongue almost numb every time you drink it. And it's just, ugh, I, I can't. Um, and today I had a crush uh, orange uh, Slurpee. I, I'm all about the crushes. Um, if only the crushes were about me. But um, I had a crush orange Slurpee. And it was, um, the problem with a crush orange Slurpee is A, it tastes too much like orange juice. It's just not, it doesn't work. But B, um, you know, when you get to like the bottom half of a Slurpee and it sort of gets like all hard and it starts melting and you suck up all the juice. I don't know what it is with Pepsi or Coke. With Pepsi or Coke, you know, the, the dregs of the Slurpee still taste acceptable. With an orange crush one, it tastes like... I don't know what it is. It just tastes like like water. It just doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't. I've given this a lot of thought. Um, there are Slurpees. I, I categorize Slurpees by their lasting power, by their staying power, and those are two different things. Lasting power is how um, uh, lasting power is how deep into the Slurpee you can drink it, and it still tastes good. Like there's always going to be a little bit of ice still left at the end of a Slurpee. Um, that's like, that's like inedible. Like, it's just like, it's ice. You're just crunching down on some, some hard water. Um, but the staying power is, uh, is how long it takes for your tongue to get sick of the flavor. You know, you know what I mean? You, you can feel it. So like a Slurpee, like Pepsi, you know, uh, blends those two really well together because Pepsi, the dregs of the Pepsi at the bottom of the Slurpee still taste pretty good. And the Pepsi flavor is just so neutral. It's it's just it's so ubiquitous. It's so familiar that your tongue is always just drinking it up. It's like yes, this is Pepsi. I like it. Um, the Coke is just a little bit too harsh. The cream soda tastes the same. Like after the first slurp, it tastes the same basically all the way down to the bottom. But you get sick of it after that first slurp. And it's sort of the same with the Orange Crush. Um, although no, that, no. What am I saying? The Orange Crush. Uh, is also the first sip thing, but it doesn't have nearly the same staying power as the cream soda. Uh, root beer fails every single test. I mean, I didn't get far enough down into the slush to even know. Um, now I want to get into the real wild card here, which is the Powerade slush. I had a blue Powerade slush, and it's weird, man, because I think like one of the main selling points of Powerade is all the electrolytes in it. And like, I'm pretty sure the way that they manifest those electrolytes into the slush is like through salt. And I didn't really realize this. Like I didn't conceptualize this properly until a couple of years ago. But once I did, the only thing I could taste in Powerade is the salt. It's full of salt. Like it, it tastes salty. It's like it's like you're drinking like a salt. I don't know. It's 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 an assault on your senses. It's just there's so much salt. And I mean, it's fine, especially if you're really thirsty, but but then I drank a Powerade slush, and it tasted salty. Like, it, it was fine. It sort of tasted like berries, but it tasted like berries that had been left in, like, I don't know, brine, uh, which sounds gross, but, I mean, I mean, I guess pickles, cucumber, I don't know. Um, yeah, it was weird. I don't know why you'd want a salty slush, but it was also oddly satisfying. I don't know. Powerade, Powerade's an enigma to me. Powerade is sometimes it's on the case, sometimes it's off the case. Um... So Powerade, you know, uh, uh, advance with care if you if you try Powerade. Now, um, I was actually at a Circle K today, uh, picking up the Orange Crush slush, uh, the orange the orange crush, if you want to portmanteau it poorly. Um, and there were a couple other strange flavors that I was kind of nervous to try, uh, but I'm gonna put it out there to, just in case any of the listeners to this show have had any experiences or have any expertise with these particular flavors because they were a little bit, um, uh, I think the word is intimidating, um, potentially nauseating, but more intimidating. Uh, the first one was Fanta Banana. Um, now, banana flavored anything is just weird because I feel like 95% of banana's flavor comes from its texture. I don't know. It's just 
Bana- bananas are weird. Like you bite into them and you lick them, and they're slimy and they're gooey and they're they don't they sort of make the back of your throat that swell up. I don't know. Maybe I'm allergic. Uh, is that a universal thing? Do bananas make the back of your throat swell up? I don't know. Um, but bananas, like, the, what is the flavor? You know, like, and I feel like nobody really knows this because whenever I have something that's banana flavored, like I accidentally chomped down on some. Uh, marshmallow bananas once upon a time and they just tasted like um like like uh what i imagine uh donald trump smells like like they just tasted like uh, gag worthy um and i can't imagine wanting to drink that i think it would actually make me lose water like it would make me vomit instead of refreshing me um maybe i'm being unfair i don't know i i was really weirded out by the banana slush uh, when I was at the Circle K, I, the, there were a couple of kids standing next to me, and one of them pointed to their friend and said, Ew, banana. And I, I thought, yeah, that's right, kid. I, I was thinking the same thing. Um, What else is there? Uh, sprite slush. Um, I saw a sprite slush. Um, I, I don't know. It's just like, I don't know. I, I don't know. Like I feel like that's one that would really failed the watery test because I feel like Sprite doesn't have a super duper strong flavor. Sprite's another thing where I think the, f- the majority of the flavor comes from uh, the bubbles. I think the bubbles are really a big part of slush or uh, a big part of Sprite. Um, and, you know, uh, soda or, or slush, slushes don't really have that same uh, carbonation factor. I mean, they got they got some popping in there, but they don't have the, the, the itchy feeling that it gives to your tongue you know it sort of scrapes your tongue up with bubbles that's sprite at least um i've, I've been wondering about the idea of an iced tea flavored slush i haven't seen one around um you know an iced tea slush because uh, it's not carbonated it's just sort of a smooth flavor but it's also you know i don't know it, it might be weird like it, it might be it, it just might be strange i don't know if, if anybody's ever seen an iced tea slush uh, please direct me to t- towards one. I would love to try it. Um, so anyway, that is my discussion about slush flavors. Oh, one more. Dr. Pepper slush. I had a Dr. Pepper slush the other day. Don't get Dr. Pepper slushes. They taste just strange. Um, not my favorite. Anyway, Dr. Pepper slush is not my favorite. Pepsi slushes, though, are the undisputed winner of slushes. If uh, you have any comments on Slurpees, Frosters, uh, Ices, uh, Mr. Misty's, whatever you call them, uh, Steve's, uh, that's a name. Um, let me know, uh, send me a DM, whatever. Remi- reminder, my uh, Instagram handle and my Twitter handle are at Mike T. Gould. Uh, you can also find me at Mike Gould Talks on both of those platforms. I'm working on putting up a Facebook page and I have purchased a domain name for the website, uh, MikeGouldTalks.com. Um, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm working on that. I, I haven't figured out the whole website thing just yet. Um, but if that's something that people would like, and I can, I don't, I could also put some of my writing up there. I do some writing on occasion. Um, that, that's definitely something that I could do. It's just, I've been a little bit busy lately and, uh, haven't been able to figure all that out just yet. So the last thing I want to talk about this week before we uh, get into the interview with Down Goes Brown, uh, is some TV and uh, I, I love watching TV. Uh, Avatar: The Last Airbender is a great show. Thirty Rock. Uh, I don't know. Uh, the Office. That's a great show. Friends. Yeah, it's all right. You know, there's there's all sorts of TV shows out there, and it's hard to keep track of them from time to time. You know, there's just so much coming out. Watched a new show on Netflix the other week called uh, Space Force with Steve Carell, and it was it was all right. Um, but there's a new uh, TV show. Uh, coming out uh, June 29th. It's a three-part web short series, um, and it's a it's a local TV uh, producer and 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 filmmaker who's put together this this TV show, this little mini series about hockey and all the dynamics at play there, and uh, and it's it looks really cool. I mean, I I don't really know much about the plot of the show uh, other than it looks like it's really dramatic and it's set sort of in a local grassroots hockey league type thing. Um, and it's called The Pond, and it's done by this guy named Matt Carson. And uh, I'm going to post the link uh, to the trailer and to the website in the description for this uh, podcast episode. Um, 
the trailer looks really good. It's 45 seconds long. You know, you can give it a watch and, and see what you think of the show. Um, I, I, it's a local production, and I have all times all kinds of time for guys like that who put in the work to create something new, and it looks like the production value is pretty high, and I'm pretty impressed, and I'm going to watch it, and I encourage you all to do the same. Um, they, they said they've had some interest in maybe getting picked up by some bigger distributors like Netflix, HBO, Amazon. Um, but that can only happen if people show interest in the show and if people watch the show and, and it looks good to me. And, uh, I think you all will probably like it if you like this show, you know, it looks like it's up my alley and this show is really about things that I'm interested in. So you can take my word for it. So I'll put the link for it in the description to this episode. Once again, that's the pond. It's a three part mini series and, uh, it's got my recommendation, so go check it out. So that'll do it for this uh, little intro to the episode five of Mike Gould Talks. Uh, once again, looking forward to having Matt Zoller sights on the show uh, June or July sixth. Uh, fireside chat, hopefully June twenty ninth, uh, which is the same day that the pond premieres. Uh, go check that out in the link in the description of this show. And uh, now let's let's talk to Down Goes Brown for about half an hour. Enjoy this interview. Back everybody, I'm pleased to be joined today by one of my favorite hockey writers in the in the sports world. Uh, I've been following his work for about ten years now, and if if you are a follower of hockey Twitter or anything like that, I'm sure you've seen him around. Uh, he's written for about every hockey outlet under the sun, and I'm pleased to be joined today by Sean McIndoo, or as you might know him, Down Goes Brown. How are you, Sean? I'm doing good. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm I'm really excited to have you here. I remember the first piece that I uh, that I read of yours. I think was back in 2011. I'm trying to remember. I think it was about the Hall of Fame, and it was on your website. And I think you were talking about like some sort. It was one of your transcript pieces, and it had something to do with Joe Newendike. I don't remember, but then I really liked it, and I went back and I read all of your stuff. Um, and I've, I've, I mean, seriously, how many different places have you written for since? Because I remember you went to ESPN for a while, and now you're with the Athletic, and I really like your stuff yeah. there. And it's just yeah, crazy. Well, I mean, I've, I've bounced around a bit. Uh, the going from my site, I had a few places that would like run my stuff, uh, but I, I would run it on my own site. Uh, went to Grantland. Grantland shut down and turned into ESPN. Uh, that uh, didn't last very long, and, and then I was in freelance mode. And you know, as, mm-hmm. as a lot of people out there know, when you're in freelance, uh, you you pretty much say yes to almost everything. So. Uh, <laughs> I, I was lucky in that I had most of my work coming through Sportsnet and Vice Sports uh, and a little bit of The Guardian. But yeah, if if, uh, if someone dropped in an email, I, I would usually try to figure out a way to say yes. And uh, uh, that lasted up until a couple of years ago when I joined The Athletic, and now I, I don't have to scramble quite as much anymore, which is nice. I, uh, I subscribed to The Athletic pretty shortly after you joined, and I recommend to all my listeners to do the same and you've been on a couple podcasts too that i really enjoy um biscuits and uh and puck soup yeah it's just it's it's very ubiquitous now to see a down goes brown piece anywhere on the internet and a one of my favorites um from back like 2008 2009 it's kind of funny to like read it now because you were talking about the the toronto maple leafs a nightmare team and you did like a three-part series where you talked about sort of the guys who made you cringe when you watched them, the forwards, the defense, the goalies, and then the guys in front office. And it's funny because, you know, you were talking about how it was like Paul Maurice was the coach, and now he's, you know, with the Winnipeg Jets and having all sorts of success. Um, but but looking back, I mean, in the last few years, because I remember you did a piece on Grantland in like 2014 talking about the Leafs offseason, and they signed uh, David Clarkson to that crazy contract. They've had some 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 stuff more recently, but is there anybody you would add to that team or change around? Because the Leafs have had sort of an interesting decade, but I'm sure you know more about it than than me. Like what's sort of the scoop on who's, you know, really failed to come around on the Leafs side in the last decade? Yeah. So I'm I'm trying to think, because I did, you're right. I did that as a three-part series way back when. I just, uh, I just remember you had a joke about Mike Craig's hair. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's uh, it, it it gets it gets a little niche, uh, even even to this day. And uh, yeah, so I did that, and I feel like I did an updated version right around that that uh, David Clarkson year, uh, and, and I'm sure he was on it, and and probably a few other guys as well. Uh, since then, I'm not sure they would have added too many guys. I mean, it's it's been it's been better since then obviously there there have been some uh some some moments uh and and some moves that haven't worked out and and the team has not reached the sort of heights that uh i, I think a a real optimist would have been hoping for back mm-hmm. when they won the draft lottery but they've been better i mean it, you, you you can't have been a Leafs fan your whole life and uh and and look back on the last three years and and really complain all that much because you know at least at least they're a playoff team at least they're uh um, you know, reasonably close to 100 points most years. Uh, so I'm, yeah, I'm trying to think who would uh, who would get at it. But it's it's tough competition. I mean, that's a hard team to uh, that's a hard team to crack. And uh, yeah, it was uh, uh, it, it's uh, it's it, there's there's a lot of competition. And and I don't know I I don't know if Mike Babcock would would potentially have to get some consideration. Again, he's he's in the running against some of those guys in the 80s that uh, were. Uh, we're not very good, but but he has kind of turned into a bit of a uh, a, a, a bit of a a goat since then. So yeah. uh, he he might be in the running, but I'd have to I'd have to consider it. Well, the reason that I bring that up is because I remember another piece that you did um, that was about a, a trade involving somebody who I think a lot of Leafs fans would have included on their nightmare team, and then I think the Calgary Flames, who I support and who a lot of people who listen to the show do sort of made a similar trade this offseason that I think maybe included a guy coming to them from the Oilers who a lot of Oilers fans might have put it on their nightmare team. And that was the Milan Lucic for James Neal trade. And I don't really want to get into that one too, too much. But I want to talk to you about the similarities between that trade and the John Cordick for Russ Cortnell trade, um, which I think is a very similar trade to the one that the Flames made this summer. And for guys who don't know, I mean, Russ Cortnell was a guy in the 80s who scored 70 points a few times, and the Leafs traded him for a guy who scored two points, you know. But yeah. But but, yeah. but 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 I think I, there's still that rationale behind it. Can you sort of explain what that meant? So that might have been my first, uh, like, that, that might have been Baby's first hot take, because I feel like I wrote that fairly early on. And, yeah. and I believed it. I didn't. Uh, you know, I didn't write it just to get a reaction. I believed it then, and I I stand by it right now. Yeah. Uh, now I will, uh, I will preface this by saying I have yet to find anyone that agrees with me, or yet anyone that I've been able to convince on this, and that includes Gord Stellick, who was the GM of the Leafs who made this trade. So <laughs> even Gord Stellick, uh, looks back at this trade as a mistake. But my argument at the time, and 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 still is, is Look, the uh, the the 1980s. First of all, if if you're a younger fan or you're a newer fan, it's very hard to describe what the 1980s Norris Division was like. Yeah. Um, you know, if, if Flames fans, you had the Battle of Alberta, so you got a pretty good sense. And I mean, the Smite, Smite Division was was pretty wild in its own right. But the Norris Division was like a five way Battle of Alberta, where <laughs> all of these teams. Uh, you know, they all hated each other, except the difference was that the Battle of Alberta had enough star players and talented players that occasionally they play hockey. Whereas, like, when the Leafs played the North Stars in 1985, there was, there was no good players on the ice. It was just a <laughs> gong show from, uh, from, from puck drop. And my argument was, look, back then in the 1980s, you needed not just a tough guy. You needed multiple tough guys on, on your team, especially if you're in the Norris division. That was back when... You know, the, the Red Wings had Bob Probert and Joey Koser and, and a bunch of other guys. And there was Shane Churla was in the division. Mm-hmm. And Basil McRae was bouncing around from team to team. Every team in that division had two or three legitimate super heavyweights. And the Leafs didn't. The Leafs back then, they, they really didn't have anyone. They went to Clark, but Clark was not a guy that you wanted fighting everyone's heavyweight. And he was a guy back then was was having a lot of injury issues. So they needed a tough guy. I mean, this I know it seems silly to think this it, today when the position doesn't really exist anymore. Back then, you needed a few of those guys. And so they traded a guy, Russ Cornell, talented kid, an exciting kid. Uh, but like you said, he's a 70-point guy. And this is the 80s. I, I mean, the, the, Daniel Marois yeah, was everyone a 30-goal, 80-point yeah. guy for the, for the Maple Leafs. So, you know, for them to 
uh, to make that move, yeah, I mean, certainly in terms of the the, the, the most skilled player, uh, they were given up. They gave up all the skill in that trade, but they were getting a guy that they needed. And and John Cordick, for all his personal problems, this kid was tough as nails, and he he was right up there with any heavyweight in the league. And you know you, you're going to go into Detroit every night, four nights a year, and face Coaster and Probert. You need a guy who's at that level. Uh, it didn't work out partly because of Cordick's personal problems, partly because Cordell did go on to have a pretty good year. Uh, or a pretty good career uh, mm-hmm. after that. Although, again, not not at the level that I think a lot of people think he he did. But the Leafs made pretty much the same trade even just a few years later. They traded Daniel Marois, guy who had been more productive than Russ Cortnell, for Ken Baumgartner. And Marois, mm-hmm. as it turned out, didn't go on and have the same success. So everybody loves that trade. Uh, but they all hate the uh, the Cordick for Cortnell, and it's sort of become the punchline. And I say this as a, yeah, I'm a Leafs fan. I'll give you a long list of bad Leafs trades. Yeah. I talk bad Leafs trades all day long. So this isn't me putting on the Homer glasses and saying my team can't make mistakes. This is me putting on the the Homer glasses and saying my team has made so many mistakes that were way worse than this one. I don't know why this is the trade that keeps coming up whenever people talk about the Leafs doing something dumb. Yeah, I mean, that's that that argument is basically the exact same argument that I make to people about getting Milan Lucic. But um, yeah, I mean, the Flames have made just so many mistakes in years past i mean i can talk about curtis lazar guys like that all day day long but so i mean I, i've mentioned a bunch of your pieces that you wrote on your website downgoesbrown.com um and like i just want to talk to you a bit about just what that process of starting that website was like because i mean it just sort of came out of nowhere and then everybody started to really like it and then your stuff was in the globe and mail and and it just i, I remember reading it and it just it kept going and going and going and it seemed like it, you know it was it was an unstoppable train after a while but i i mean if there's one thing about journalism i mean it it never really feels that way when you start something you know i mean from what from what i've learned about talking to other people you know so i mean how did you get your start in journalism like where did you go to school uh for journalism because you wound up in ottawa did you go to carlton or i did yeah. yeah so it's it's a bit of a weird story because when i was growing up i wanted to be a sports writer Right. You know, I was the kid. I would come home, you know, back in the day and open up the newspaper and find out if the Leafs had won the night before and read all of the, the great sports. And this this was this is Toronto in the 80s. So this is we're talking like Jim Proudfoot, Frank Orr and, and Shaky Hunt and all of these guys uh, in the Star and the Toronto Sun. Uh, I, I used to love that stuff. And I, I would read it all. And I said, you know what, that's what I want to do. I want to be the guy who writes about writes about sports. And uh, uh, that was my answer whenever people said, you know, what do you want to do when you grow up? And then I went off to, to university, and I did a journalism degree at Carleton. And after four years of that, I kind of realized, y- you know what? I like writing about sports. I don't necessarily like reporting about sports. I, 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 didn't, uh, I, I didn't necessarily want to be a, a reporter or a journalist. I hated calling people up. I hated, you know, I hated going and knocking on doors where, where you weren't yeah. wanted and, and having to put a microphone or a tape recorder in someone's face, which I did. I, I worked summers at the local paper in uh, near Toronto and uh, did my tie, you know, my internships at the Ottawa Sun and places like that. And it, it, and it wasn't great. It didn't feel like a great fit. And so when I was finished school, I had the opportunity to go and do something a little different where I was using my writing, but but wasn't following a journalism path. And I went and I did that. And that turned into a pretty decent career, uh, pretty decent uh, you know, job sitting in a cubicle, uh, you know, it's kind of kind of sold out to the corporate world. But <laughs> it was uh, it, it worked. But I always had that itch to write like that was the part that I, I missed. And so I was the guy that would like write the way too in-depth uh, season preview for the fantasy football league. Right. Uh, or the guy who would like, you know, j- just always sending out those emails and like breaking down and like, uh, here's, here's what happened on the game last night. And people are just like, dude, nobody asked for this. <laughs> but then, uh, you know, 2007, 2008 around there, uh, blogging breaks out as this thing. And suddenly, you know, there's an outlet for it. And I was like, all right, well, this, this is it. This is what I can do. I will, I will start a blog. I will write about hockey. I will scratch that itch. I will probably get bored of it after six months and never go back to it. But in the meantime, I can I can build an audience of dozens or maybe even hundreds of people. And uh, to to start off, that's pretty much what I had. Uh, it was you know certainly anyone who's 
who's trying to get into the the media side of things these days knows how hard it is to mm-hmm. to break through and to to feel like you're actually building any kind of audience and not just one of the thousands of voices out there mm-hmm. um and and it was it was easier back then because there were fewer of us but it, it still felt the same way and there were a lot of times where you're kind of like man like i i don't think anyone other than my immediate friends and family are actually reading this stuff and even them i'm not completely sure they're not just humoring <laughs> me and and claiming that they're that they're reading it but over time slowly but surely built a bit of an audience had a few things that uh, you know back then we didn't really talk about things going viral but things that that caught attention and and every time i would it would add a few few readers here and there and just eventually ended up getting enough opportunities to get in front of enough people that when there was an opportunity to go uh to a site like grantland where they were looking for a second hockey writer to come in and be the backup to katie baker somebody somewhere had seen my stuff and thought, okay, well, let's, let's reach out to this guy and see what he's doing. And then it was, it was sort of off from there. So it, 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 it wasn't an overnight success. It never felt that way. Uh, but it was fun. It was always fun. Even when there was just, just a few dozen, you know, that they still, you know, that feeling of putting something up there and then coming back six hours later and being like, Oh, I got one comment. Awesome. <laughs> and then going and checking it out. Uh, and, and then it just sort of grew from there. Um, and, and I, I wish I, I get people ask me a lot. They're like, you know, what was the plan? What was the roadmap? I, I don't know. I didn't yeah. have one. Like I said, the plan was do it for six months and get bored and, and then go on to something else. And it, it didn't work out that way. But the only plan I had was that I, I figured wherever it was going, it was going to be a slow path and I wouldn't try to take any shortcuts and rush it. Mm-hmm. And other than that, you, you just, you know, my advice to, to this day, whenever people ask me, is uh, find something you like doing and then sit back and hope you get really, really lucky along the way because that, that seems to be the path. Yeah, I mean, I, I relate to that 100%. I went to Carleton too for about a year and a half um, and I just, I mean, I got sick so I came home but it was also just, you know, it was, it, I, I, I really resonate with, you know, reporting versus writing. You know, I it's it, the format, you know, it was a little bit too hands off and I just, I'm going to SATE, um, which is the Polytechnic here in Calgary next year to do, um, just more technical stuff because I just wanted to get that hands on stuff. But, um, and then, yeah, I mean, I remember when you went to Grantland and started writing there and it was just a really good, it was a really good website and I miss, I miss it a lot to this day. Bill Simmons, I think that was his website, wasn't it? And it was, um, and it was a really good site and I, yeah, like I said, I still miss it. Um, so your down goes brown, and I, I know the story behind the name, um, but I know my dad listens to the, this podcast, so I just want it to be explained to him and guys like guys like him who don't really know who you are and what you do, um, yeah. because you know down goes brown. It, like when I, my whenever whenever I talk to my dad, he's like, oh you you read that down brown goes article or something, mm-hmm. and, it's, and it's always just some permutation of it. Um, but can you just explain to uh, the audience just what that name actually means? Yeah, so I, I will explain it because I realize it's it's potentially confusing, uh, and I get lots of people offering up theories, and <laughs> I, I'm always amazed how many people will, will will tell me they're like it's a Dustin Brown thing, right? I'm oh like, God, no, really? It's not Dustin Brown. And I, <laughs> I've had other people like, is it Dave Brown? And I'm like, Dave Brown? Like, when did you ever see Dave Brown get knocked down? Yeah, like, that never happened. Like. So no, it's it is uh, based on uh, a a fight, uh, not surprisingly, that mm-hmm. uh, between the Leafs and the Blackhawks. So again, where where this is early '90s Norris Division. So it's a Saturday night Maple Leaf Gardens. Of course, a line brawl breaks out. Uh, of course, all the usual suspects are fighting. But then this fight breaks out. The 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 brawl is happening along the bench. But this fight breaks out at center ice, where suddenly everybody in the in the in the crowd, and I was there that night. Uh, realizes that Sylvain Lafebe and Rob Brown have paired off at center ice and are kind of giving like poking each other with all like you want to go or do you want to go and and Rob Brown if, for people who don't know was a very flashy very talented player but he was not a fighter and he was one of the you know he had the long hair he had the he he had the ability to drive you crazy he was the guy that Ron Hextel chased around and uh, one time after a goal he was just one of those guys that if he was on the other team uh you really just wanted to see him get get punched in the face someday and sylvan lefebvre was this quiet guy he didn't fight a lot so we didn't actually know if he was any good at it and obviously rob brown also didn't know if sylvan lefebvre was any good at it but uh it turned out they dropped the gloves and 
Sylvain Lefebvre is pretty good at it, and Rob Brown is not. And so <laughs> Sylvain Lefebvre ends up spinning him around and basically KOs him at center ice, and, which is to say he knocks him down uh, and then just leaves him there and skates away. And, yeah. and Rob Brown gets up, and he's, he's fine, and he skates off the ice uh, and, and goes back to the dressing room. But Joe Bowen, who is the Leafs uh, uh, radio announcer and, and TV voice, uh, marks the occasion by screaming, down goes Brown, down goes Brown, which is a play on down goes Frazier, which is a very famous boxing call. Yeah. Um, and it was just the sort of thing where, I, and, and like I say, I was at the game that night, so I wasn't even listening. I didn't even hear this, but mm-hmm. I think we were on, in the car on the way home, and they kept replaying it on the radio, and we were just cracking up. I, I don't know what it is, but for some reason, Leaf fans just thought that was hilarious. It, it was the early 90s Leafs. We didn't have any, like, we didn't have any Stanley Cups to get excited about. Like, yeah. Winning a fight against the Blackhawks on a Saturday night in November, that was as close as we got to having something to celebrate. And it just became a thing that it stuck in people's minds. So you fast forward 15 years or whatever it is, and I'm sitting there setting up this blog, and I'm staring at the field that says blog me. And I'm like, what the hell am I going to call this thing? <laughs> and and I remember I had, I had two things in mind. The first was uh, my my favorite uh, my favorite band is Nine Inch Nails. And Trent Reznor once said that when you're naming a band, it's just got to be something that's easy to remember, easy to spell, and it abbreviates into something cool. And I was thinking, all right, so that's that's what I, I got to do that. And then I thought, back then, a lot of the popular blogs had names in them. It was stuff like uh, Kissing Susie Colbert, Fire Joe Morgan. It, it was, there was there were names. So I'm thinking, okay, names. There's got to be something with a name. And Down Goes Brown pops into my head. And I go, all right, that's it. People can spell that. Easy. Type <laughs> it in. Hit enter. Like, that's as much thought went into it. It was like, you know, this, this blog I'm going to cancel in six months. That works as well as anything. But the the amazing thing was I was writing mostly about the Leafs. And I, I suddenly started getting not a ton of feedback because there was I didn't have a ton of readers. But every now and then I would hear from people who'd go, dude, you know what? I know exactly what call you're referring. And I can picture that in my mind. I can picture that fight in my mind. I like this. I'm sticking with this site. I'm adding you to my bookmarks, which is a thing we did back then. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I know if, if you're going to name your site after that obscure thing that I thought I was the only one who, who remembered, uh, then I'm on board. And, you know, like once or twice a week, I would hear from some some variation of that. And I, I really do think it helped me build the audience, um, you know, to the point where years later, I've still got people who are like, yeah, I started reading you on day one because I saw that crazy blog name and uh, you know, uh, the flip side of that is I'm now stuck with this and every place I go, you know, the, the athletic, I'm like, can we just use my name? And yeah. like, nobody knows your name, kid. Like when I went to write the book, they're like, I'm like, why do we have to put it in the book title? Can't we just put my name? And they're like, no, nobody knows who you are. They know the name of the site. And all right. But anyways, the, the epilogue on that is I have, uh, uh, since actually got a chance to talk to Rob Brown about it. Oh, he, sweet. Hosts, uh, he hosts a radio show and they had me on once one time their producer, calls me up and he goes uh like do you want to come on this show with rob brown and i go I'll, I'll i'll come on the show but does rob brown know like what's going and they were like oh yeah he knows and and he wants to talk and he had a just a totally great sense of humor about it he was uh um you know completely uh you know had we we had a laugh about it but uh he has uh to this point not chosen to uh to hunt me down and uh and get his payback so that's really uh, funny so so far so good on that one <laughs> that's really good uh that leafs blackhawks bro was that the same one that uh chris derno was that no that was a, that was a few years after the 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 derno one is the famous well i, I say i say famous because i i assume everybody was watching uh hockey night canada in, in the late 80s religiously like i was but uh, that that is, I, I I have to imagine a lot of fans have seen the highlights of the infamous um, Gary Lehman Denny Savard yeah. fight, and, and hopefully different. you can hear the air quotes in my voice when I say fight <laughs> because what what happened was that was you know again Leafs Hawks Saturday night got to be a line brawl, and at one point Lehman is tied up with somebody and Denny Savard who was definitely not a fighter i mean denny savard even back then was was not somebody who who, i mean he he pretty much never fought in his whole career just comes over and sucker punches gary lehman and then skates away and like gets gets behind the linesman and lehman was a guy he didn't fight much but he could 
he, he you know he, most guys back then knew what to do if, if they had to if they had to fight and Lima was one of them and so he chases down Savar and Savard's doing the whole like behind the linesman thing like oh if this guy you know, if it wasn't for this guy I'd, I'd get you and finally the referee comes along and says to the linesman he goes just let him go and the linesman just says all right go ahead and you could just tell Danny Savard was like, oh, that was not that was not in the plan at all. So he starts backpedaling. And Gary Lehman, if you've never seen it, you got to go on YouTube and watch it. Gary, literally for two straight minutes, Gary Lehman just like follows him around the, the half the ice. And Savard just keeps backpedaling. And Savard clearly doesn't want to fight. And Lehman kind of does, but also doesn't really seem that like, I mean, he, 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 he like you're just sitting there like, just grab him. Like, man, you can you can do he finally does grab him, at which point Dave Manson flies in and gets triple game misconduct for wiping out the linesman and all that. It was just, just fantastic stuff. Uh, and, and, and like Bob Cole and Harry Neal are just cracking one-liners the whole time, <laughs> just two straight minutes of everyone else just watching these guys. So I wrote a post about it, and I had you know the, the YouTube clip, and I was looking at it, and one of the running jokes on my site in the early days was that Maple Leaf, old Maple Leaf Gardens – Anytime anything interesting happened, the fans would all stand up and you couldn't see the ice anymore from the camera. And they had to switch to like this overhead camera. Uh, and I, I it, at one point during the fight, this child, like this eight-year-old child stands up and blocks out the whole camera. And I'm like, how does an eight-year-old child block out your, like, block out your camera view? Um, but I noticed that the kid had a name on the back of his jersey, a name and number. He was wearing a Leafs jersey and it wasn't a name that I recognized. And I was like, no, I don't, and, and, you know, I didn't, and I typed in, you know, the name was Derno, and I type it in, and I'm like, no, there's no Derno ever played for the Leafs, there's no Derno, uh, and, and I, but I typed Derno NHL, and I realized there was this minor league kid in the Avalanche system named Chris Derno, and I was like, no. And he's from the GTA. Couldn't be, and I look it up, and he's from the GTA, and I find, like, an interview, and he grew up, he was a Leafs fan. And then I see in this interview, he said, they asked him, like, where'd you get your number, you know, whatever he was wearing, 45. And he's like, well, I never wore 45. I get, they just gave that to me. But when I was a kid, I always wore number eight. And I'm like, it's gotta be him. I think this is the same yeah. kid. And I, I ended up just writing that going, I think this is the same kid. And I had somebody reach out and they're like, the Durdo family lives next door to me. I asked them, yeah, it's definitely him. And, uh, and, it, and it was great because it, it just turned into this funny thing. And then like a few weeks or months or, or maybe a few years later he, he actually made made it back to the nhl yeah scored a goal on hockey night in canada and hockey night in canada used that clip and they're like this is the second time we're showing a chris durno uh, that chris durno has been on hockey night in canada the first one is in 1989 and here you know here's the clip so uh it was just one of those cool weird things that would never happen in real sports writing but when you've just got a blog that no one's reading anyways you might as well get a little weird and creative yeah, I remember reading that story uh, when I was going back through your archives, and I just saw that you actually uncovered that, which and I thought it was hilarious. Um, okay, so journalism, yeah, finest. <laughs> seriously. So, uh, running a little short on time here, so I just want to talk about um, one other thing, some some current news um, in the NHL, because uh, as I'm sure everybody knows who listens to this show, um, the Buffalo Sabers had a bit of fun yesterday, um, and by fun I mean they basically fired everybody. Um, and I mean, Jack Eichel's been in Buffalo for what, five years now after he was drafted in 2015, second overall. Uh, they got that Jeff Skinner contract hamstringing them for another eight or seven years. Um, and with, with four scouts in their system total now, uh, and no GM, well, they have uh, Kevin Adams who replaced the Jason Botterill who they fired yesterday. Um, for, for a Leafs fan, I mean who i mean i like how i like how i described uh team turmoil and then i immediately transitioned to for a leafs fan yeah uh and i'm not even offended that's absolutely (laughs) this is my area of expertise yeah but i mean i think everybody wants to try and appease jack eichel and make him happy and buffalo has about 20 defensemen and uh and no real good wingers and and the goaltending situation is super duper uncertain but for Buffalo, do you think this is a team that, you know, what, what do you think their direction has to be? Do you think they should be to keep going through this process, or do you think this is a team that really needs to win now? I mean, they, they certainly want to win now. Uh, I mean, look, here's here's the thing in Buffalo is that fan base has lost faith in the ownership, and uh, rightly or wrongly, uh, this is this is a really tough hole to get out of, and, and I, I 
written about this a lot as a Leafs fan. I grew up in the Harold Ballard era. There, mm-hmm. there was it, where you just knew, like there was, there was nothing. There's no point getting hopeful. There's no point getting optimistic. This team wasn't going to win a championship. Harold Ballard's the owner. Maybe we'll make the playoffs. Back then, it wasn't that hard to do. But uh, uh, that's that's as far as it's going to get. We're not going to be real contenders. I, I've written about situations in places like Ottawa right now, where the same kind of dynamic is playing out with Eugene Melnick, and the fans aren't aren't uh, aren't buying what he's selling. Uh, and you're seeing that in Buffalo too, somewhat surprisingly, because it was only a few, even a few years ago the the Pagulas were very well respected, and you know they had saved the Sabers, they were saving the Buffalo Bills. Uh, but it's it's really clear how it's fallen apart now, and you know this is this is the problem when you have ownership that that the fans don't believe in, and that that maybe the hockey world is is not believing in. Everything gets tainted. Like even Kevin Adams, Kevin Adams, by all accounts, very smart guy, has done a lot of different things in his post playing career. He might be the right guy, but everybody just looks at this and says, yeah, they just hired the one guy from the organization who could who could. Hey, who, who they knew that they could work with and could could get along and and he's a yes man he's just going to do whatever they say you know all this stuff that's completely unfair to him he's his own mm-hmm. guy he should have his chance to to succeed or or fail on his own merits but this is kind of where it goes and and you know that as far as them it, it's in a way it's it's kind of funny because it, for the last few months all I've heard from any Sabres fans that I interact with is how they they're they're just so tired of all the losing and they just want to burn it all down burn it all down fire everybody get rid of everybody and then the pagulas come along and they burn it all down and they fire everybody and the fans are like no because you like they even managed to screw that up because they they gave everyone a vote of confidence first and then came back and the end and made all these changes and there's a lot of speculation to did they get rid of people who weren't doing a good job or did they get rid of people because they don't want to pay anyone for the next few months when there's no hockey and no tickets to sell and uh, it's just a mess. Uh, you know, the reality is you've got Jack Eichel. You've got a really special player. You've got, you got some other guys. I mean, obviously, the Rasmus Dallin and, and other guys on that team. Uh, the window for them is not indefinite. I don't think you want to do a total start over a rebuild. Um, but you got to have some patience. And, and unfortunately, patience means you got to have fans that are going to give you some benefit of the doubt. And I think they've kind of burned through the, the benefit of the doubt. And, and that's the problem with owners. You, you got a bad coach, you got a bad GM, they'll get fired eventually. You got bad players, players come and go. Owners stick around for a long time. And I'm, you know, I, I feel awful for the fans in Buffalo because they're great fans. Uh, you know, you always said Buffalo is always at the top of the TV ratings and, and all this yep. other stuff. But it's an ugly situation right now, and it's it's going to be really tough to fix, and Kevin Adams is going to have his his work cut out for him big time. All right, last thing, Sean, I want to talk to you about. Um, uh, got a big free agent on the market this summer in Taylor Hall, uh, Calgary born and raised, grew up a Flames fan, and uh, I know there's a bunch of parallels with that considering uh, that Toronto made a big splash in free agency just a couple of years ago to land uh, the bedsheet boy, John Tavares. Mm-hmm. And... Yep. Uh, I'm just, you know, I've started to see a couple people um, in the last few months talking about how maybe they shouldn't have done that with Tavares and, uh, you know, how, how maybe it's it's ruined their salary structure and maybe he isn't bringing what they're supposed to bring. But what do you think about signing a guy like Taylor Hall if he's on the market? Do you think it it's it's too it's a little bit too risky, you know, to give him to give him that sort of term? Or do you think the skill sort of outweighs the risk when it comes to those top free agents? Yeah, I mean, top free agents, I think, yeah, you, you go ahead and, and go after them. This is a league built on elite skill. Uh, if you have a chance to get uh, a top-tier guy and, and get him without giving up any other assets other than cap space, then I think you you have to look at doing it. Uh, you, you look at what Artemi Panarin has done with the Rangers this year. You sort of see how what, what success can look like. Uh, so my answer would be if they believe that Taylor Hall is an elite player and is going to be an elite player for most of the next six or seven years that it would probably take to sign him, then yeah, you you go after him. This is this is your chance to add a guy who's who's going to be a top tier player. If you think he's that top tier guy, now there's some question about that. Obviously, he was MVP just a few years ago, but since then, uh, it hasn't hasn't been as impressive. There've been injuries. This year was not a good season. Uh, and, and then you factor in nobody knows what this offseason looks like. I mean, where, mm-hmm. where's the cap going to go? What's you know? I said 
six or seven years, but maybe it's not. Maybe this is a year where you can go up and say, look, man, we, we do one year or two years. And maybe. you're just going to have to take that and then hope that, you know, we reset a little bit, which would be a great opportunity. Um, you know, in, in general, I, I'll tell you, as a Leafs fan, the the idea that the Leafs' big problem is they've got too much elite talent that they're paying market value to is, is an awfully nice problem to have. I, I would much rather have... Uh, John Tavares making 11 million when maybe he's only a nine million dollar player, then have some uh, some third line winger making five million who's really only a one or a two million dollar guy. Right. Um, if if you're gonna make a mistake, make a mistake with elite talent. Uh, so yeah, if Taylor Hall is still that guy in in their view, go after it. But be careful because we've certainly seen a lot of guys in their late 20s get signed to these long term deals based more on what they've already done. Uh, than what they're most likely to do in the future. The Calgary Flames last few years uh, talking about James Neal and Troy Brower and Milan Lucic and I mean it's just so much of this money tied up in uh, in middle six talent. I think if they have a chance to add a top line guy with no acquisition cost, I think they got to go for it. But uh, anyway, I think that's going to bring us uh, to the, to our time here. Uh, but I really appreciate having you on the show today. I uh, uh, once again, everybody, go follow uh, Sean McIndoe, Down Goes Brown, at Down Goes Brown on Twitter, and you can read his stuff at The Athletic. And, uh, yeah, once again, thanks for coming on the show, Sean. Right on. Thank you for having me. All right, guys, we'll be right back after this catchy music. Thank you. That'll do it for episode five of Mike Gould Talks. Once again, check out the Pond TV series at the link in the description for this episode. Thanks again to Sean McIndoe for coming on the show. Go check out his Twitter account, at DownGoesBrown, and go look at his work on The Athletic, uh, Vice, Grantland, wherever you want. Uh, looking forward to Matt Zoller's sites coming on the show, and everybody stay safe out there. We're, we will get through this. We're, we're almost there. We just have to keep our nose to the grindstone for a few more months, and we will get there. Anyway, I'll talk to you next week for Mike Gould Talks. This is Mike Gould wishing you the best in the next seven days. Goodbye. Goodbye.